0: Welcome to this month's special programming series, Focus on Cancer, on ReachMD XM157. Colon cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States. What are the hereditary conditions considered to be likely indicators of colon cancer in a patient, and what truly constitutes a complete family history of the disease? You are listening to Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinicians Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mark Pochapin, spokesperson for the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy and the director of the J. Monahan Center for Gastrointestinal Health at Cornell University. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Pochapin. Thank you. It's great to be here with you today. As an internist, I certainly think of adenominous polyps and history of cancer itself as being significant indicators of a family history of this type of problem. Is that all we need to be thinking about?
1: Well, actually, colon cancer I always consider as a family disease, but it's not just specific for colon cancer. There are many other glandular cancers that are linked into the concept of polyps and cancer being a familial origin, and that includes ovarian cancer and uterine cancer, some uroepithelial cancers of the GU system. And there are some other rare cancers that we think of. But primarily, when we think of colon cancer, we should think of family histories of polyps and cancer because polyps potentially could be hereditary as well in polyposis and syndromes like that. And also, a lot of the female type of cancers, primarily uterine and
0: ovarian. I see. And hyperplastic polyps, we can safely treat as if there's no polyp there at all?
1: Well, actually, it's funny you say that. Unfortunately, when we go back, we always think of things as black and white, and it used to be that hyperplastic polyps were just something that we would consider absolutely benign. Most of the time, they are when they're small, but now we're recognizing that some of the larger hyperplastic polyps, or patients who have multiple hyperplastic polyps, may have something called a serrated adenoma. Hmm. In essence, it's a hyperplastic pulp with the possibility of having some adenomatous tissue-like component to it. And these serrated adenomas, which are large hyperplastic in essence, have an actual risk of progressing into adenomas in the same adenoma carcinoma sequence. So pathologists now are beginning to use the term serrated adenoma. And as just a general rule, if anybody sees that on a PATH report, I would recommend that they actually look at that as a regular adenoma.
0: Oh, very interesting. That's certainly different than the way I've been approaching things. So that's very important. Yeah,
1: that's a relatively new finding. And also we're learning that there are polyposis that primarily affect these hyperplastic serrated adenomas. So some of the familial component of polyposis that may be actually of these hyperplastic polyps. So people should just keep an eye out if they see a lot of hyperplastic polyps that the pathologists are looking for these serrated adenomas.
0: And when you mention the gynecologic malignancies, should this be a consideration in all uterine and ovarian cases or are there specific things that make us think of a connection with colon neoplasia?
1: Well, I think it comes back to this concept of getting a family history. Sporadic cases of ovarian and uterine cancer, I personally would recommend that patients start screening for colon cancer at an earlier age. Currently, we use 50 as the general mark for everybody to just start screening for colorectal cancer in one way or another. But if there is a history of cancer in the family, we can talk a little bit more about that. But. If that history includes ovarian or uterine, I actually make the recommendation in a first-degree relative to start at age 40, the same way if a first-degree relative had colon cancer. So... We don't usually think of it, but uh, hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, or HNPCC, actually includes not only colorectal, but primarily uterine and then ovarian. And that's why I really like to take a good family history in patients who have uterine ovarian, because sometimes you find that a sister or an aunt or a sibling actually has colorectal cancer. And then you have to start thinking about these HNPCC type of syndromes.
0: Very interesting. And then when you say family history, certainly first degree relatives, is there a and going beyond first degree?
1: Yes. Actually, the national recommendations, which have recently been updated, but the national recommendations really suggest that anybody who has a first degree relative or even potentially a grandparent or a cousin should at least start thinking about the family history. Certainly, first-degree relatives all have an increased risk of actually developing colorectal cancer, even if their relative just had a large adenoma. This was originally determined in the National Polyp Study that looked at different risk. But the closer the relative is, so first-degree being the closest, and the younger the relative is, Mm -hmm. actually starts increasing the risk to two, three, or even four times as high. So if you have a young first-degree relative, let's say a parent who, God forbid, died at age 40 from colorectal cancer, then your risk of developing colon cancer is much, much higher. Even a grandparent, if they were younger, potentially could pass on a trait that could be picked up and skip a generation. So it's sometimes not obvious. The first-degree relatives we have very specific guidelines for. Mm-hmm. You start screening at age 40 or 10 years before the youngest person who had the cancer. And as I said, it doesn't necessarily mean just colon cancer. If someone, for example, had a uterine cancer at age 40, you might start screening for colorectal at age 30, Mm -hmm. first degree relative. But as it starts getting out to cousins and to grandparents, it becomes a little tougher. Usually the recommendation is if someone has a colon cancer over the age of 60, that you start at age 40. But if that's negative, then you would go 10 years as your follow-up, which is the usual follow-up we do. On the other hand, if someone was younger than 60 when they had colon cancer, say 55, you would start at age 40, but the follow-up screening would be, again, age 45, not 10 years, but 5 years. And all the screening recommendations for anybody with family histories or high risk would be colonoscopy, not the long list that we currently have that includes things like enema and flexible sigmoidoscopies and things like that.
0: And virtual colonoscopy also would go in that category as not being?
1: Well, as of yesterday, when the national guidelines came out from the ACS and what's called the Multi-Society Task Force, which include all the GI societies and also the American College of Radiology, I think now these guidelines split the concept of screening into tests that detect adenomatous polyps and cancer and that includes flexig colonoscopy, double-contrast barium anima, and now the CT colonography, also known as virtual colonoscopy. And then the tests that detect cancer, these would be the fecal-based tests, such as the guaiac fecal-cult blood test, or now the new immunohistochemical fecal-cult blood test. So tests that detect microscopic or occult blood in the stool would be tests that detect cancer Mm -hmm. and added to that list now is the brand new stool DNA test which has been around a little bit but has been included as a test that detects cancer. But I think the emphasis for colorectal cancer has always been prevention and the only way we're going to prevent the disease is by finding the polyps. That's why the American Society of GI endoscopy really tries to focus on the final common pathway which are these polyps. Everything that we do for screening is really focused on finding the polyps and the nice thing about a colonoscopy is that... That at least with a colonoscopy, not only can it be diagnostic, but it can be therapeutic. Because if anything turns positive, obviously you're going to need a colonoscopy to remove the polyp.
0: If you just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and with us is Dr. Mark Pochapin, spokesperson for the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy and the director of the Jay Monahan Center for Gastrointestinal Health at Cornell. And he is discussing with us the implications of a family history of colon cancer and stressing to us that that needs to be defined in a broad manner. Dr. Pochapin, at this point, are there any leads toward genetic testing?
1: Yes. Actually, I think one of the things that we could stress to people practicing primary care is the importance of this family history, of getting the history. Patients sometimes will not present a family history because they think it's not important. You'll ask about, is there family history of cancers? And they might not think that family histories of polyps, for example, Mm -hmm. or of different types of cancers might be important. So once you start getting that clustering, I always recommend getting a genetic counselor involved if we're thinking about genetic testing. But there are certain criteria for sure where you'd want to do genetic counseling and testing. For example, there are specific mutations of the mismatch repair genes seen in HNPCC. That's that hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer mm-hmm. syndrome, also known by the way in the past as the Lynch syndrome. Mm-hmm. In HNPCC, you can actually test for these specific mismatch repair problems. and. What you're actually looking for is what we call the rule of three, two, one, where we're looking for multiple clustering of young cancers in multiple generations. If you start hearing that there's parents and grandparents or siblings with colorectal cancer or associated cancers, then you could look to see if people actually meet the criteria for HNPCC. It mm-hmm. could potentially be a life-saving pickup just by doing a good history on a patient. The things like FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis, they're very rare, and you might pick it up very infrequently, but truthfully, that's not really the goal of doing the family history. I think the goal is something like an HNPCC, which is also relatively rare, but more importantly, about 25% of patients may have a sporadic type of first-degree relative that would put them at increased risk for colorectal cancer. So if you had a healthy 44-year-old that you're just sitting with, and you find out that a parent at age 60, for example, had colorectal cancer, well, that person probably needs to be screened now in the 40s, and you may pick up a large adenomatous polyp, which potentially could be a life-saving intervention.
0: Should we routinely be referring people for genetic counseling when there is a suspicion of familial clustering?
1: Personally, I say yes, because I think that as primary care providers, it's very difficult to spend the time with a patient really going through what all the possibilities are in terms of genetic testing and what the nuances of the genetic testing are. It's also very difficult to keep up to date with all that information, whereas a genetic counselor is trained in doing that. And by working with a genetic counselor, then once we get the results of these tests, we can go over with the patients what the implications are for future screening and testing. The problem is that there aren't that many genetic counselors out there available. But as we become more in tune with this concept, the family history of not only colorectal cancer, but a lot of other cancers as well, including breast cancer, for example, more genetic counselors are becoming trained and available. And I would really recommend people reaching out and working with them. They're a terrific group.
0: In terms of things like prevention, is there anything new with COX-2 inhibitors, aspirin, or other agents that might be useful in a, an individual who is at higher risk?
1: You know, this is a difficult question because we do know that even aspirin actually promotes a benefit in terms of chemoprophylaxis and decreasing the relative risk of colorectal cancer. I think the number one thing I stress to my patients is diet and exercise, going back to the basics. Actually, obesity and diabetes, more obesity and a sedentary lifestyle do increase the risk of cancer, including colorectal cancer. And diet, we know, plays a role, especially the negative components of diet. Saturated fats. Saturated fats, red meat, tobacco, alcohol, all of these things increase the risk. I always start with a healthy lifestyle because I think that's something that promotes a benefit way more than just colorectal cancer, but for heart disease and diabetes. And so the concept of health and wellness, healthy lifestyle, healthy diet is sort of the first place to go with cancer prevention as well then there are specific things. Now, aspirin does promote a benefit. So, if patients have a reason to be on aspirin for another reason, I like to think of it as more of a fringe benefit. I don't think the data is strong enough to really suggest people taking aspirin. And sometimes the data goes back and forth, although it seems pretty consistent. As we said with the COX-2 inhibitors, for example, they seem to also promote a benefit. Mm -hmm. And it's been known in patients with polyposis that they seem to benefit from the NSAIDs. So, I don't like to use aspirin specifically for chemoprophylaxis against patients with family histories, but I like to look for a reason to find the use of aspirin and then at least let
0: patients know about it. Well, I want to thank Dr. Mark Pochapin, who has been with us discussing the implications of a family history of colorectal neoplasia. This is Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Listen all month as ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals, as we feature a special series, Focus on Cancer.